so many coaster books. Can I use this coaster? You can use both. Okay. I'm going to move my keys because I will pick them up <laughs> at some point. I can't be trusted. I can't be trusted with the keys. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Steph Vicari. How's it going, Steph? Uh, it's going great, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Yeah, I've got some coffee. It's uh, the afternoon on Friday. We just had a lovely lunch. Things are good. I love Fridays. Fridays are fantastic, although this was a week where we had a Monday holiday. I feel like I've talked about this before on the podcast, but this is the only job where I look at Monday holidays and I'm like, I'm not sure about you. Maybe I would just rather work. Uh, and this week, we actually kept the schedule so that we were doing client work during the week, but Friday is still a, an investment day. Mm -hmm. But sometimes Monday holidays mean the lack of investment day. And it's just such an interesting idea that I kind of don't want a holiday sometimes because I, I value the Friday time that much. Yeah, I, I feel the same, although I still love the holidays. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I, I do understand where I will severely miss having that Friday just mm -hmm. because it's my day for my brain to catch up on the things I didn't have time to look at. It's a time for me to pair with the colleagues that I don't get to spend time with during the week. So I empathize that when we have a holiday, if we miss our fun Friday, then it feels like we've we've missed out on something great. Yeah, I don't want to go all the way on the record as saying I would rather not have Monday holidays. But the fact that I'm even considering it is like, well, that's, a, that's an interesting thing that I should dig into a little bit. Yep. Yeah. But anyway, what have, uh, what have you been up to in life? So I have started a new project since last time you and I chatted. I am working with a, a new company. They're solving a pretty interesting problem that has to do with ensuring that universities can get their vendors paid on time. And mm. they're working with a lot of different users. We've gone through a design sprint with them, which is fun for me because it's been my first real, I would say, proper design sprint with mm. ThoughtBot. So that's been fun to go through. So before starting this project, I was also paid to work on open source. That was really mm. fun. That's the first time I've experienced that before. And the way you phrased that was somewhat abstract. You were paid, like you were on a client that happened yes. to be, this wasn't like a side gig thing that you found. That's true. It, it was it was someone that had come to ThoughtBot mm -hmm. and then had asked us if we could work on an open source project. So yes, it was through ThoughtBot. It's interesting. Those are rare, but they do come up from time to time. And they are this magical confluence of this is work that we care about and it's out in the public and we get to share all of that. And demonstrate more of our work because often we're working on code bases where we can't share the work. Mm -hmm. But this is, it's an open source thing. It's out there, uh, which I think as a result, we can certainly say the name of the thing that you were working on. Oh, certainly. Yeah. It was working for um, HubSpot was the one that approached us. Mm -hmm. And they have a community that has built up where they're building a Ruby API wrapper. And it has over half a million downloads. So it has a lot of folks that are very interested in the code base. Mm -hmm. And they had some extra room in their budget where they were looking to give back to the community. At least that's my impression of one of the reasons they were interested in hiring us to work on the project. They identified that this was a solid project and uh, collaborated with the current owners and then brought in ThoughtBot to also just add some extra engineering power to it. How was the project? I remember talking to you a few times about it and there were some interesting technical things that you ran into. Yeah. How was the experience? Overall, it was a very positive experience. I had not worked maintaining an open source project like that before, so it was a learning curve for me, which I really enjoyed. It is a Ruby project, so that part still felt very comfortable. The most uh, unique part of it for me was working with VCR and how they initially set it up to test their project. And for anyone that's not familiar with VCR, it's a Ruby gem and it will record any of your HTTP interactions and then it will replay those interactions for you in your test. So it's a nice way to capture live responses with an API that you don't own and then still have it in your test. And that, that was a challenge working mm -hmm. with VCR. 
I was hesitant going into it because I, when I sourced some opinions from ThoughtBot internally, others had also had some negative experiences with VCR. So we initially explored the idea of building out like a full mock and then using that instead. But since we had a short time on this project and VCR was pretty ingrained in the project already, we wanted to go ahead and see what we could do with the code that was there mm-hmm. instead of trying to pivot at that moment. Yeah, that would have been a pretty big pivot. I want to unwind and ask a bunch of questions about a bunch of different features of that. So VCR, in this case, there is a test API, I assume, or like a sandbox that you were able to hit in development mode. And that's what the tests would record the request and response hitting that test sandbox thing and then save those off and then VCR would be able to rerun against those. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. HubSpot has their own demo sandbox API that they put out there for developers to interact with when Mm -hmm. they're building against HubSpot. And that's the one that we were using. Mm -hmm. Right. And if I'm understanding correctly, the main selling point of VCR is speed. Is that correct? Like, as a result, you're able to run your tests that much more quickly because you don't have the full network out and back. And I guess your tests are now no longer, they don't require having internet access. Is that more the one, I guess? Right. I think those are the two big positives. One, the fact that you don't have to have any real live network calls that are being issued during your test suite. And then the second one is it does speed up your test, of course, since you're not issuing the real HTTP calls. Those are the two primary drivers that I see for it. The one that gets me excited about it, and we can unpack this further and go into it, is that you have a lot of information that's presented to you from the response when it makes that recording. So it gives you a nice representation. And then ideally, you can easily update those recordings. So let's say the HubSpot API changes on Mm -hmm. us. It's something that you should be able to tell, like if you were to schedule your test to update their VCR recordings, let's say weekly, then you would be alerted pretty early on to know if something had changed and broken your your application's expectations. This is a thing that I've always wondered. So I have used VCR very loosely in the past. My experience was similar where it was like, huh, this seems like a really good idea, and yet I find it to be complicated to use, which a number of things fall into that. Like, did you ever work with Cucumber? I did, yeah. It's been a while. Cucumber (laughs) was one of those where it's like, yeah, absolutely. Write our tests at like a business level using sentences and then dot, 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 profit. (laughs) And it's the dot, dot, dot where that one really got lost in the idea of regular expressions to parse out portions of sentences to then turn it into actual test case data. And Mm -hmm. it seemed so clearly like a great idea to me when I first saw Cucumber and that general idea of doing system or feature tests, Mm -hmm. but did not work in practice. And I feel like VCR might be something that is similar, where it's like, yeah, that totally makes sense. And it turns out, in practice, it is just too complicated. I don't know if that's your view on it, or you described some complications. So I guess I'm wondering what they were specifically that you ran into. That's where I'm struggling right now, too, is I want that dot, dot, dot profit. Mm I went into VCR very hesitant of it because of what I'd heard that other people had struggled with it as well. And I felt the same pains. I have some pain points with VCR that I spent a lot more time working on the test suite than I did working on new features. And that's always a bummer Mm -hmm. when you have to spend more of your development time there. So there certainly are areas where it was falling down, but then when it worked, it it was it was great. <laughs> like it it was showing me the hope that I wanted and the like because I still haven't managed to find any joy in testing APIs. There still seems to be a struggle in, well, I mean, how far do I take this? Do I just mock it out? Do I just mock out as little JSON as possible so I only have what I need? Do I build a full replication of this and then start it up and run it in addition to my test suite? Do I reach for something VCR that's a bit of a combination of both? 
and I, I haven't found that joy yet. So mm-hmm. I, I still am interested and in continuing to work with VCR to find out if their joy is with VCR, but we don't have enough best practices around VCR because mm. some of the places it fell down, I don't think were VCR's fault necessarily. Mm. I think there's not enough content around best practices on how to use VCR. I think that could have mitigated a lot of my pain. Can you talk a little bit about like specific pain points that you hit? So some of the pain points were around knowing when VCR is recording is one of the big ones. VCR will default to recording once. So if it finds a matching request that's already been recorded, then it's going to replay that one. If it Mm -hmm. doesn't find a matching request, then it will go ahead and record a new one. Most of the time, this works beautifully. Every now and then I would run into a test where it was re-recording and it was passing, but I didn't realize that until I noticed that is because it was adding a new file with a new recording. Mm. And I was having to update that. So I want it to notify me loudly when it thinks that it should have a recording and it doesn't. And there's a mismatch because mm-hmm. to me, that's more of a test failure. And that's a pretty easy configuration to make with VCR where you can just simply say that I want you to record never. And then if you need to rerun or update a test, then you can turn on that VCR recording to to say, OK, go ahead. You can make a real call and then please store the response. That makes sense. That was one of the pain points I ran into. Uh, working with a sandbox API is another interesting one, because if you have a bunch of developers that are hitting this endpoint and creating records, that if you need to do a simple get request, you might get back thousands of Mm. entries. And so one of the files that was generated from hitting this particular sandbox was like over a megabyte, which was just Just giant. JSON or something? (laughs) Yeah, of just all the JSON, all the records that it was returning and then storing in that VCR file. It's a bunch. Yeah. (laughs) So that was something that's another thing to tackle where if you're using a sandbox API that's shared by other developers, you need to find a way to create your own sandbox so then you're not dealing with all those returned records. Mm -hmm. Because then even if you were to curate that file and remove all the records, when you update it in the future, you're going to have the same problem. So that was another pain point I ran into. So I think we've talked about VCR a little bit, and we've highlighted some of the complexities and even sometimes discomfort. But would you characterize VCR as something that you enjoyed using, wouldn't use again? Like, how how do you feel about it now coming out of this project? That's a great question. In the beginning, I would have said I felt uncomfortable with VCR, and I was uncertain about the choice of proceeding with it. Having used it more and applied some of the practices that I think will remove some of those pain points, I do think VCR was the right choice for this project. It helped highlight some of the misconceptions that I had around how the API was going to respond and some of the expectations that I had. And VCR did a great job of capturing that and bringing it front and center. Mm -hmm. And being an API wrapper, it's very important that it works so closely with the HubSpot API. So I I really valued VCR and would support the continued use of it Mm -hmm. going forward. One of the other things, as you mentioned, we talked about some of the pain points. Uh, There are some other positives that I haven't mentioned. They have some really neat features. One of them is you can filter sensitive data. Mm. So as you are using, if you're using like an API key, so if you have a sandbox, but you have a personalized sandbox and you have an API key, there's information that you can filter out so it doesn't get recorded to your files that are then being checked into your GitHub repo. Hmm. So there's some neat stuff to it. But mainly highlighting those misconceptions was very valuable. Right. It's interesting to hear you say that you would both encourage VCR to be used you know, in the future on this project and probably would consider it for future things of a similar nature. So yeah, just another tool in the mix with caveats and trade-offs and also a bunch of positives and 
nothing's ever straightforward, unfortunately. No, but it is neat that I started using a tool that I had a lot of hesitation around, and I still have some hesitation around it, but I'm excited to continue working with it because I'd like to see where it could go. I want to push some more boundaries with it mm-hmm. to see if applying some particular practices will remove the pain points, and this could become where I find my joy when it comes to testing APIs. Maybe this particular medium approach is the one that I would enjoy the most, but I need some further discovery to find out. Well, hopefully we can have you back in a future episode and you can tell us about the joy that you found. That'd be great. One of the questions that I have, and this sort of relates actually to the previous episode that just came out last week. I was talking with Herman about duplication and I think we sort of, Mm -hmm. the conversation brushed into the area of caching and caching is a form of duplication. And so we were talking about like generated code and things like that. And so I think of VCR recordings or cassettes, I guess is the fancy fun lingo that we use for them. I think of those as a form of caching but that cache can be out of date. And so your tests can pass because your VCR, your recorded thing says, yep, this is the way the world is, but in fact, the world has changed. The API upstream has changed. So my thinking would be maybe just always run on CI against the real system. Get VCR out of there for CI test runs, or maybe a certain like when you're checking master or something like that, or before a deploy, but put some regular sanity check in there so that it doesn't have to be on a developer to say like, oh, I know that the API changed. I want that automated validation. And in theory, my tests are exercising the system in a way that can find that when it does shift. But did you have any thoughts on when to re-record or? We didn't get to that point yet where we configured a setting where we wanted mm-hmm. it to re-record and how frequently. I think the problem if you wanted to run the real tasks with CI every single time is you're going to run into rate limiting. So I'm pretty oh. sure Twitter is one of those where they only allow you so many calls. Interesting. So if you're running your tasks frequently, I'm pretty sure you would bump into that. So I, I don't think that approach would work. But that's one of the nice parts of VCR is say mm-hmm. if you wanted to update it every day, that seems far more right. realistic and you're probably not going to hit the rate limiting. And that still gives you the safety of you're not making real network calls, but you are checking on a daily basis. Do Mm -hmm. my expectations still hold up? And that's the part that I do really like. I also liked about VCR that the different APIs that I've worked with, some of them can be very funky in their responses and their documentation and expectations. And to define funky, I I really mean just surprising. Uh, We don't need you to (laughs) define funky. It's been... uh, You got it? Okay. (laughs) I think it's a fantastic word to describe APIs. And I appreciated VCR because when I was surprised by a response or surprised that one of my requests had failed, it showed me exactly all the information instead of hopping out into like Postman. Because typically Mm -hmm. I would use Postman to validate my expectations and then I could move over to my test and add it there. With VCR, it would execute the request. It's going to record everything thing in a file, something fails, I can hop in there and see what went wrong. Or if it went well, I can just take a peek to see what I'm getting back. That part I really enjoyed about it as well. The other pain point that I I did experience circling back a little is the test setup. So one of the areas that I ran into is a lot of folks using VCR, and I shouldn't say a lot, but the the ones I've experienced using VCR were setting it up where the tests aren't self-reliant. So they are hitting the actual API, but they're relying on data that they just happen to know is there. So they they haven't gone through the steps where, let's say, if you want to test updating a user. So if they know that there's a user that's already in existence on the Sandbox API, their test would just update that user. But you're really... How do they know the user's there? Just from experience or because they know there's so much data on the Sandbox environment? They put the user there a couple weeks ago and they just rely on it? Exactly. 
And that part, I ran into a number of those. And I think that's pretty common from some of the blog posts that I've read on VCR. And maybe I'm just overlooking the ones who highlight that there's a different approach to take. Uh, So one of the things that I did was going through the test suite was updating so that each test is self-reliant, which does make it noisy, which is unfortunate. Like there are more requests to create the record than update the record and whatnot. But yeah. Right. And VCR is going to record all of that, which is fine. But that is part of it. So if I have a test that is just testing updating user, I will likely also have the setup where I'm also going to create a user. Mm -hmm. I'm going to update the user. And then I'm also going to destroy that user just Mm -hmm. so I leave my sandbox in a clean state as well. And what that, a good Samaritan. Oh, thank you. I tried. So that was a bit interesting where those reading the test found it distracting. And I understand because it makes it look a little yep. less focused as you understand what's happening. And some of that can be abstracted away with maybe like a before or like a round hook with mm-hmm. RSpec. But that's part of the process. I'd rather have that additional setup for each of my tests so they're reliant versus just relying on the idea that we know this data's in the sandbox. Yeah, it's interesting. I think of the last five episodes of the podcast, the concept of mystery guests in tests have come up on four of them at least. But this is the first instance of like a spooky mystery guest at a distance that I've seen, which is pretty sure there's one in the test sandbox. So we're just going to have our test hit against that. Yeah, that is all interesting. Very briefly, because I think you did hit on it, but I want to point people in the direction if they're interested. You sort of talked about the hierarchy of how when we're testing and working with third party APIs, there are a couple of different approaches that we can use. So Mm -hmm. I think the, the entry level one that you talked about briefly was RSpec and just using that and we're mocking out somewhere within our code base some edge but not all the way out to the HTTP layer we're mocking out a service within our system to just say and given we get back the right JSON then we go and do things and then the next tier up would be VCR type things so we're Mm -hmm. actually recording and saving off these HTTP requests and responses but that's the level that we're going to we're still there is a sandbox type service in the cloud and then the third being all the way up to the top with building a fake of the system which I think is our Depending on how much interaction we're doing, I've seen us use that pattern a lot, Mm -hmm. or we'll have like a fake GitHub that we interact with or a fake Amazon or whatever the service it is in the cloud that we're using. We will build a fake of that. And then we have some tooling around that, uh, namely Capybara Disco Ball, a wonderfully named project that allows us to spin up those fake servers in the background and actually just allow our app to be completely unaware of the fake So that's sort of the hierarchy. We also have a video on Upcase where Joel walks through sort of a sequence and describes all of these different approaches. But I agree. I have yet to found my joy within any of those options. It's a hard thing. I remember when I was going onto this project and I knew how heavily focused it was around being the middleman of building this API wrapper. And I, I watched that video with Joel, mm-hmm. and it's it's marvelous. And I was thinking about which approach I was going to take. And I liked the idea of having that full running a server next to the test, so that way I'm, I'm hitting these endpoints. But given the funkiness of certain APIs, and you're not necessarily confident as to what they're going to return and how they're going to respond, I don't want to have to create a replica, even mm-hmm. if it's a watered-down version. I think it works really well when you own the API. So if you're Stripe mm-hmm. and you own the API, and then you can build that replica, then that makes a lot of sense to me. Because or if you you're ThoughtBot and you build fake Stripe, which is a thing that we did at one point. <laughs> or, I think or we've given too. it back to the community and Stripe <laughs> might have even like encouraged it along. But, okay. but yes, that, those sort of yeah. larger, more stable ones, and ideally when you own it, then mm-hmm. it's great because you can feel more confident in that mm-hmm. fake. But often when you're interacting, you don't own it and you still have to make this decision. So it does become that interesting yeah. question. I found one other thing that surprised me about VCR as well is when 
updating the recordings instead of replacing the files with a new recording it's going to append to the file. So that was a small surprise where I realized you need to delete the files before you can re-record. Otherwise, it will store the old and capture the new, so you're just growing your files. It'll still find the correct request, and your tests will pass. But so this is just an oddity around like just, disk space, and I guess diffs and things like that because they look. Diffs, yeah. But it will behave correctly. It will behave correctly. Huh. If I recall correctly, it still behaved fine in the sense that the tests were passing, but my files were growing, my diff was growing. And I'm keeping around artifacts of responses that mm-hmm. don't need to be kept. And there's there's ways around that. You could simply like remove that entire directory and then rerun it. Yep. So there are certainly developer programmatic ways yeah. that we can resolve that. But that was just another surprise that came yeah. to me. Yeah, I, surprise is, I think, the right word. And there's, I forget where it comes from, but the idea of the principle of least surprise. Mm. Is that a Python? Is that a principle? I like it. I just haven't heard it. Yeah, it might actually be a Rubyism, but it's the idea that like a method should be named the thing that makes sense. Like whatever your first guess is, granted, everybody's going to have a different first guess, so it becomes a hard thing to do. Yeah. But that does sound like surprising behavior, and mm-hmm. ideally we can avoid surprising behavior. But I'm sure there is a reason for that. Whether or not it's a great reason, who can say, but I'm sure that's not just like, oh, whatever. I'm guessing there was some like, oh, no, if we do this, this system, like the times where bugs get enshrined as features or surprising behavior gets enshrined as features and you try and take it out. And someone's like, whoa, 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 my world required that strange behavior of the system. You're like, all right, I guess that lives on forever now. Yes, I tend to have a lot of faith that when people are making decisions, they are doing the best they can in the circumstances and with the knowledge that they have. And I have a lot of faith in folks that when they are building something, they're building it to the best of their abilities. Mm. And that's another thing that also stood out to me with working on open source is I already had that opinion going in, but open source just reminds me of that even further because I was in that seat now where I wanted to make changes, but then someone in the community raised their hand and they're like, oh, but I I need this one thing, even though you don't think it's important, it's Mm -hmm. important to me. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's, I'm so glad you told me because I just didn't know. And and it's hard to manage all those voices and get it right. It, It is. One of the other themes that's popped up on a bunch of episodes recently is the complexity of managing open source and having all of the different voices come in. And I guess it it maps pretty well to the complexity of building products. Open source projects are products in a sense, and you have to balance all of the different needs and then also try and keep the thing simple and keep the core thing that it does as useful and discoverable and not surprising and as real, real hard things to balance. Was there much in terms of community involvement that you got involved with? Like, were you managing issues at that point or were you scanning back through them to try and triage things? It was more of triage at first. We had one particular person from the community who was very interested in pushing along some work that was going to help them. And we were also at that point where we wanted to have a reset on the API for the project. So we tidied up some things and released it. And then we acknowledged, okay, from here on, it's going to be breaking changes and we're going to get to V1. The project, I believe, is still in that state. I'm unfortunately no longer on that project But they were in that state where they're still working towards that more defined, what do we want this, how do we want this project to really work for V1? Mm -hmm. Like we've built it to a place that has attracted a lot of attention and it's done well, but now we can step back and sort of rethink our decisions. And we want to make sure it's a friendly environment for contributors. I think it was a little tough at the time, especially Mm -hmm. with VCR. That could be another consideration for adding VCR into the project, or maybe it's just an opportunity for documentation, but contributing with VCR led to a couple different patterns because different people were trying to work with it. 
So that led to some oddities as well. But mostly it was triage, going through issues, improving the testing framework so then others could contribute more easily. And then we were also doing some feature development. Open source is such an interesting world and all of that. Actually, uh, (laughs) this is sort of a, a random tangent, but last night I was going through and I was actually prepping show notes for a recent episode. And this is something that I've gotten back into the habit of now. I was doing it for a while when I was working on Upcase, but I basically have a document with a bunch of topics, a bunch of things that are referenced, and then I want to turn them into markdown links. So at one point I wrote a Vim plugin that did this and it hit the Google search API and did some weird stuff in the background to make that work because Vim doesn't necessarily speak JSON, but here we are. And then it broke at one point, Google deprecated the Google search API. And I was really sad because I missed this thing in my world. But I got by and then I was doing less of that work for a while. But now I've been recording this podcast and doing the show notes for a while, probably since August, I guess. So six months-ish, a lot of episodes. And I keep wishing I had that thing. And so last night I finally was just like, all right, I'm giving myself 10 minutes of the time that I've allocated to do these show notes. Let me see if I can fix the thing that was broken. It's been broken for two years, and it took me seven minutes to fix it. And I'm so annoyed. It's one of those (laughs) where, and I think this is a reasonable place. Like Some people think of me as a person who spends hours and hours messing with my dot files and configuring things. And I'm really not, I'm not that guy anymore-ish, maybe. But this is one thing where I was like, you know what? That's going to take a while, and I don't have time, and it's not that important. I can just write markdown links like anybody else would. (laughs) That's fine. And I'm so annoyed that it was such an easy fix. That it was easy. <laughs> yeah. I had to just switch over. There's a new API. And it's annoying to set up. And so I'll, it will be longer before I can actually like re-release the project with support for the new API because it requires people setting up their own custom search engine on Google, which apparently is a thing, and then setting up an API key. And then I have to figure out how to make an API key available to VimScript, which none of those are good words to say in a <laughs> sentence. But it's mostly that frustration of, I don't know if, how often you experience this, but like, man... I could have fixed this in seven minutes, and it's two years later. I haven't, I haven't had that experience yet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure my day will come. Well, yeah. But I do understand how that, and that could certainly be frustrating if you thought it was a much larger thing, and then you finally, it's part of that inertia of just saying, I'm going to look at this. Yep. I've, I've had that moment, like uh, someone submits like a new large PR, and maybe it was like on mm. the open source project, and I just have this mentality of like, oh gosh, this is, this is going to yep. take a while, and I just, if I just take the 10 minutes to, to dive into it, it'll be fine, but it's yeah, just it's getting over that initial so. hump, mm-hmm. and it's also like, often there's discovery that can be done to figure out, like I think I had poked mm-hmm. at it once or twice, but it was exactly, I think it was actually more like 12 minutes, let's say, to fix this thing. But it took all of 10 minutes to discover that it would take 12 minutes, Yeah, which is a weird sentence to say, but here we are. But before, I'd looked at it for like five minutes. Yeah, And that didn't get me close. I I hadn't gotten past that that one point. And I, I feel like there's actually interesting parallels to when you're working on a project and there are things that are subtly broken or like the test suite has a bunch of deprecation warnings in it. And you're like, oh man, I don't have an hour to dump into that. And in your mind, you define that it has an hour or more of time required to fix it. When in fact, it might just be like bundle update gem and then congratulations, it works better now. So I've tried to actually get better about staying focused. And as a result, I give myself less time to work on these sort of things. But now I'm feeling the reverse of like, I could have fixed this and it would have been easy. So now every project I'm on, I'm probably going to fix all the broken things real quick. Or I'm going to try. That's one of the the key takeaways I've learned from being here at ThoughtBot is really time boxing anything that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I've discovered that 
if I set aside just like 10, 20 minutes to contribute to something or to look at something, that has helped me so much. Because in the past, I would think, okay, I'm gonna, this is going to take a whole day. It's going to take all of my time. But I've learned if I section up things, and even if I don't make progress, I mm-hmm. at least have a little more information like, okay, well, now I know it's actually only going to take an hour. Or mm-hmm. I can validate or like, yeah, no, this is really going to take a full day for me to work on. And that's been huge. Thoughtbots taught me a lot, but time boxing has been one of the key values that I'll carry on forever. Yeah. yeah, it's an important one, just giving yourself that little bit of exploration, but making mm-hmm. sure it doesn't spiral into, oh, man, where'd the afternoon go? I've had those, uh, too. <laughs> I have just been trying to make the bin setup work better, and somehow it's tomorrow today. Now that we've gone on that fun tangent, I want to loop back to a question that I had, which was we had a discussion at one point while you were working on the gem, and it was around handling API responses. And particularly, I think, if I remember correctly, the gem was using a pattern where it was using exceptions. So it was raising in the case of like a 404 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Am I remembering that correctly? And then I'm wondering where you ended up in resolution or whether you stuck with that or what came out of that. You are. You're remembering that correctly. The project was using basically that exception control flow where if you issued a request and then if it failed for some reason, it was going to raise. And given my experience with other languages, I was excited about the idea of not raising. To me, that feels very intrusive that if I make a request and something fails, I I don't feel like an exception. It's not exceptional in my mind. It's okay for a request to not go through or even if it doesn't go through, but maybe like it failed to update because I forgot to pass in a certain value. Mm -hmm. And that failure It's an okay status to have, and it just needs its own representation that's outside of being an exception. And I was a bit surprised because I started going down the path of thinking, okay, well, I wonder what other Ruby projects are out there because I was looking for something to have like a solid model to look at or other considerations. Like what if we didn't use exception-based control flow? And looking around, I realized all the Ruby projects, a lot of the API wrappers, I should Mm -hmm. say, all use that approach. And when I asked around for why some folks do prefer that approach, they do like the idea that you can just sort of chain your commands. And if something fails, it's going to fail noisily. And maybe they'll have something higher up in their code that's going to notice that and then bubble it up in whatever system they have that's monitoring their alerts. So yes, we had a conversation around that and trying to figure out if there were other approaches to take. I had conversations with the maintainers to figure out which way we wanted to go, and they agreed they liked the idea of not raising, but we weren't sure we wanted to change the project that Mm -hmm. much at that point in time. And there's also value in just following what the community is already familiar with. So if we were to change too much, then we could lose some momentum there. It is interesting. I've noticed though, so I was on the project, we decided to continue with raising for when things failed. But now that it's been some time that's passing and as the current maintainers are still working on it, one of them has circled back to me and they've decided that they don't want to raise. So it's been fun to see that conversation come full circle and then figuring out what that's going to look like. Because having an accurate representation when you don't have types of failure, that's been the troublesome part for Mm -hmm. me in Ruby. If you have any suggestions Mm. or experiences of how you've seen it modeled and enjoyed it, that'd be great. So I will say most of the things that come to mind when I start to think about this of alternatives to exceptions for control flow start to blend into type systems. So taking that error or what was described as an exceptional case and modeling it as data. And then with data, I I think about types like get as a method, then returns an object. And that object is of one of two types. It's either success with the data that comes back with that 
or its error with the error message. But in Ruby, those will be classes. And we can do that and you can have like consistent methods on them and you can add like success question mark or success huh, as I would say that. You can add that method and so it's consistent on both of those possible return values and it's just true in one case and false in another. So I think that's the key is you should be able to handle the response object in a consistent way for some portion of your control flow, but then branch where necessary and say like, okay, in the success case, I do this thing. And in the error case, I do that thing. The other bit that is interesting and the way you phrase it of exceptions are used for control flow often in Ruby to allow for basically stringing together the happy path. So like Mm -hmm. given that I make this request and I get the thing and then I parse the JSON and all of that is going to work definitely no problems whatsoever and then let the exceptions handle any of the fallout. That makes me think of functors or monads to invoke the bad words, the complicated words from functional programming that are actually, I think, simpler it's one of those things where like you're only allowed to talk about them once you've written a blog post about how they're a burrito. <laughs> There's a blog post out there about how monads are burritos. They're not. They're just a mathematical concept. But what we're talking about here is the idea of being able to chain operations together. And so possible that I think you could do this in Ruby. And I'm pretty sure we've actually thought has produced a gem that introduces things that are like functors or monads into Ruby. And so basically it just provides an interface that allows you to chain and sequence operations and handle the happy path consistently. So it's very similar to promises Mm -hmm. in JavaScript where you can say like, fetch from the API, dot then parse the JSON, dot then make a secondary request, dot then do something else. Mm -hmm. And at the very end, you can say dot catch, I think is the one. And there's even a dot finally. It's been a while since I've been in that world. Uh, But promises are essentially, they're like a monad interface where that then method is consistent. All objects will have that, but it won't call the subsequent thens if there's an error at any point. So you basically Mm -hmm. have an escape hatch, but you're able to define that nice happy path. Mm -hmm. And in languages that have this strongly type functional stuff with those sort of interfaces for functor or monad or whatever, you're able to model that happy path really well and then still have explicit handling of the sad path. And Mm -hmm. you also get to own when you make the decision about the sad path. That's the thing that I think using exceptions complicates is you're popped out of that code path now. You can't do anything else. You can't print or anything because an exception breaks you out of the current call stack and puts you somewhere else. That's probably why it's used because it's just an easy way to like pull the escape hatch, run away, everything went bad. But often we want to do stuff with that data. Yes. I I really like the way you said owning what to do, what happens in the sad path. Mm -hmm. And that's the part where I completely agree where it just feels like that is taken away from me when we use exceptions. And I feel like it's part of what's going to happen with an API. There are times that things aren't going to go as planned and, Mm -hmm. and I'd rather save the exceptions for another part of my code base and in here acknowledge the fact that if something doesn't go through, there may be opportunities of retry. There may be opportunities to then sort of bubble up the issue That has forced me to have a lot of interesting conversations with myself and evaluating some of the other existing Ruby API libraries that are out there and seeing how they handle it. And most of them still follow the exception-based pattern, Yeah, which which works. It's just I don't think that's the approach that I would prefer to take. Yeah, I agree. And I've definitely run into the case where I'm like, what's happening here? And then I recognize that it's an exception. And like, that's... Mm -hmm. No, 404 is totally reasonable here. I've got user input that's telling me what thing to look up. And so I hit the API. It's not an error. It's a very reasonable outcome of the program that I've built here. Who are you to tell me that this is an exception to almost put it into an emotional space? Like it is sort of that idea of it is a very big choice to make to take things out of the normal control flow. Yes. The library is now making that for you. And there is no real way to turn that around. You can rescue and then you get sort of get back into it. But it is... 
it does break things in subtle ways. The other part that's interesting to me when libraries choose to make that decision is when you look through their documentation and they have all the the great ways that you can use it and you can mm-hmm. interact, none of them talk about the failure. And mm. to me, that's I need that half of the story. Like yep. the success is just half of it. I want to know when things go wrong, what do I do from here? And if you have that modeled in a way that it's not an exception, then it feels more important in the story of like, this is what happens when things go well. And if things don't go well, this is what you're going to get in return. And if it's an exception, everyone just seems to sort of like push that under the rug and not Mm -hmm. talk about it. And then when you run into it, then you're still going to have to write the code to handle it. Yeah. So I would love that to be more upfront, to be like the whole story is here's how things go for the happy path. And then when you encounter some errors, here's what you do from here. Mm-hmm. And I still think we could do that even in the exception-based libraries or the exception-based control flow where you could still put that in the documentation. But I say, why not go ahead and just make it important enough to model it another way? Yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting because I think of don't use exceptions for control flow as a pretty clear adage in the programming world. Obviously, this case where we're saying lots of Ruby API wrappers tend to not follow that advice. That's one example, but it's interesting because the previous episode was Herman and I talking about different sort of core ideas of programming and then bike shedding about them as one does. But I think this one's a particularly interesting one. And I've seen an example recently of exceptions for control flow that I'm not sure I disagree with. So it's in the world of React, and they have added a feature called Suspense to the framework. And so basically what happens is data requirements are one of the core things that happen in a lot of applications. And so with React, you have to get the data in there somehow. And they've basically historically said, we're not going to answer that question for you. We're a view library. That's what we do. We're for rendering wonderfully clear UIs, but that's, that's what we do. You figure out the data stuff. But they finally accepted that data requirements are so core to the thing that would be nice if it was built in. So they introduced this idea of suspense. And basically the idea is in your render method, which typically the render methods were meant to be no side effects, no other behavior. You are just taking some props and some state, turning it into some markup. Mm -hmm. Very direct, true function in the sense of functional programming. Now, with the introduction of suspense, there are caches. So you can have like the user cache, and that somehow abstracts actually the API calls and things like that. But Mm -hmm. it's meant to be treated as a cache. And in your method, you will say user cache.read, and you may like pass it an ID to say, get me this particular user. And the way that will work is the first time you invoke it, it will throw a promise. So raise an exception, essentially. But the exception, the actual value of the exception is a promise, Mm -hmm. which they catch. They put in a spinner or whatever you tell it to be the loading indicator. They wait for the promise to fulfill. And then when it's fulfilled, they re-render. And this time, when you read from the cache, it will synchronously resolve to the value that you want, which is now stored in the cache. And then it renders. Which is all very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think I said all of that correct. People on the internet, correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that's how this works. And what's the part of this? What's the value that you feel from this that you enjoy? It's the idea that the framework has a primitive around loading states and around handling, fetching of data and caching and things like that. There's some really great demos that they've put out that show cancelable API calls, loading states, caching, et cetera, that seem to present some really interesting and powerful UIs. Like There's a thing that they have introduced, and I may actually be conflating two different features of the upcoming work around all of this, but it's the idea that on a fast connection, it's actually worse to show a loading indicator than not. So if you flash a loading indicator for 150 milliseconds and then render in the content, 
that's worse than if you just do nothing and then render the content after 150 milliseconds. That almost feels instantaneous. Yeah. So the ideal thing to do is, if it's a very short delay to get the content remotely, wait that amount of time mm -hmm. and then just show it. So transition to the next screen or whatever it happens to be. But if it's past some threshold, say it's like 300 milliseconds, you can decide that that's the timeout. And after that, start showing a loading indicator. And then ideally show the loading indicator for more than 150 milliseconds. So again, it doesn't have a flash. But so that means like on mobile, your site may have loading indicators at various points because we're on a lesser connection. Mm -hmm. But on desktop, uh, when we have a nice internet connection, everything's going great, the site will feel nearly instantaneous and have that responsive feel that you're looking for. That right. is nice, yeah. I think some of the things around suspense and around those sort of features were necessary in order to make all of that work and work at a framework level so that I, as the application developer, just like, I want to show the thing. Mm -hmm. I don't care about all of the subtleties and nuance of building that really nice interactive when it needs to be, loading indicators when it needs to be. Mm -hmm. But it does have that aspect of, if you read from the cache, it is throwing a promise stopping the control flow there so you are no longer processing through the render function mm -hmm. and then later it recalls your render function to try that again and they've had to be somewhat defensive i'd say the the core team of react talking about this are like yeah we know that we're not supposed to do this but we thought about a lot of ways and this was the best one we came up with and i don't know if anyone out there's got a better idea well, kind of don't tell us because we were to pick this one <laughs> but like i'd be interested and i've not seen anyone mm -hmm. in the community it's just like you're just doing it wrong do it this way but it is interesting yeah that is very interesting i can see how it's a very opinionated community and some folks would want to have a different approach but i see that they have found some value there from using exceptions in that approach it's interesting there are definitely no absolutes well maybe that sounds like an absolute now that I just said it. <laughs> there are almost no absolutes in programming, and this is an interesting one where I think it's good to revisit these sort of things and you know keep having the conversations, but uh, it's an interesting world. Well, with that, I think we have probably covered enough in this here bike shed. Uh, thank you so much for joining us once again, Steph. Thank you for having me back. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.